Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S. For additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Well, let's uh, let's let's proceed on oil pricing. I'm going to try to get through my part of the discussion pretty promptly. Don't have anything to add on oil prices. The problem is supply. Based on statistics put out by China, it's not that their economy may be weak, but their oil consumption looks pretty good. So it's not a demand issue. It's a supply issue. And the surprise, potential surprise I pointed to two weeks ago of Saudi Arabia going to market share, I think is a little less likely this week than it was two weeks ago um, because of the military action in Yemen. Remember that Saudi Arabia and the Houthi supported the, the government of Yemen, which the Houthis overthrew. The fact that we've done some, you know, some uh, missiles and other efforts by the U.S. Navy to take out drone sites and anti-ship missile sites, I, I don't think is popular in Saudi Arabia, but they, they are, I think, less likely to go to market share than, than they would have been before those strikes. As far as gas support goes, the weather, where it's cold all over, except San Diego, seems pretty good for gas pricing. The problem is, if you look at the, the, the prices from last Thursday, the 25 price is up to 354. We're really hoping that that price gets to four dollars. Whether or not this stretch of cold weather, where it's cold all over, is unclear, may may get there. Certainly, certainly helps. On the U.S. government revenues and expenses. I think that I think that we are headed towards lower spending. The extension that will be loaded in this week, give it a, another month or so to get to the 12 expenditure bills, I think is all good news. I think the direction of spending is down, which is good, and it doesn't solve the problem. But if you look at Exhibit A, the deficit was under a trillion dollars in 2018 and 2019, uh, <clears throat> ballooned to around three trillion for the two COVID years, and you know now is got to be dealt with. I think I think the trend is down, even if the Democrats won the House in 24 and retained and Biden remained president. I still think the trend of spending is down. 
it's not enough to solve the issues, but it is welcome news. The two sheets that were updated over the weekend are the uh, the energy sheets. And what I'd like to do for five minutes is just talk about the energy sheets, which start on page nine. And on page nine, Exxon's compared to Chevron, Conoco, Oxy, Chenier. For those of you who don't have the sheets in front of you, all these companies have lower free cash flow this year than they did last year. That is mostly a matter of commodity pricing. <clears throat> and, and that is not indicative of bad performance. Capital spending is restrained here, is up very little. Chenier's the only one that doesn't have a, a large drawdown in free cash flow. Most of Chenier, of course, is the largest producer of LNG at their two facilities in Sabine Pass and Corpus Christi. The price of LNG is down a lot, but they mostly toll. In other words, they their customers pay them to turn natural gas into LNG so that they they don't have as much commodity exposure. If you turn the page to page 10, uh, these are midstream companies, Kinder Enterprise, Energy Transfer, and Western midstream. These people are more like Chenier. They're making a fee for providing their services. Once again, their free cash flow is about flat. They're showing admirable restraint in CapEx based on the interim reports, but their, their, their EBITDA, their cash flow before CapEx is pretty flat. So there is some they're always with the midstreamers is a little commodity exposure, but they're they're kind of running in place, I would say. When you turn to the oil companies, page eleven, EOG, Magnolia, Permian Resources, and Diamondback. Once again, they all have a decline in free cash flow. That is commodity related. We call this page the oil page, but Half of the of the BOEs, barrels of oil equivalent, which converts gas to oil at six to one, which is its BTU equivalency, not its price equivalency. But half of everyone in the industry uses it, knowing that the ratio should be higher if you did it based on price equivalency. But based on BTU equivalency, even though we consider these oil companies about half of their BOE production is gas, and gas is down significantly. I mean, gas averaged, Henry up gas averaged $6 in uh, 22, and it averaged about 280 and 23. Page 12 are the gas companies, Antero, EQT, Chesapeake, and then Antero Midstream. For comparison, Antero Midstream's sole customer is Antero, so it's interesting to compare an upstream company and midstream company side by side. Once again, Entero midstream is tolling. CapEx is actually down a little. Uh, the free cash flow is up a little. Interestingly enough, EQT and Chesapeake 
have a slight increase in free cash flow. So, you know, they, they a lot of hedging involved there. One that isn't hedged is Antero, so they have lower EBITDA. EQT benefits a bit from its increase in cash flow because of M&A activity. You know, these people are doing okay. In terms of valuations, I'm going to go back here based on current gas pricing or gas pricing last year. And this year, the strip is more or less last year. Maybe it'll come out $3 or something. These companies are trading around 13, 14 times cash flow. If you go to the oil companies, again, based on current pricing, they're around 10 or 11 times free cash flow. These aren't bad values. They're, you know, I think fair. Uh, the midstream companies, and this is on an enterprise basis because they all have quite a lot of debt, more in the 15, 14 times free cash flow. That's debt plus equity times free cash flow. I think those are a little high, frankly, but they have pretty good dividends. And these are all well-run, well-situated companies. When you get to the Exxons and Chevrons and Conocos, again, around 10 or 11 times free cash flow. Chenier at seven times free cash flow is probably looks like a bit of a bargain. Nothing here that, that you know, stands out from a valuation point of view. All seem to be pretty competently run. It's four pages in the 20 pages. It's the ones I know the most about. You know, I think these dozen companies or so are all doing okay. I think if you own them, certainly wouldn't sell them. If you have cash, liquidating another investment or you're looking for new investments, I think that when we get to the front of the memo, page one, two, three, four, chips and software and whatnot, we've got much higher free cash flow ratios, you know, 25 or 30 times free cash flow rather than 10 to 15 times free cash flow, but more of a prospect of free cash flow growth. I mean, Microsoft at say 40 times free cash flow or Apple at 30 times free cash flow or Alphabet at 30 times free cash flow. These are expensive, probably, of all these companies in the first four or five pages, the cheapest times free cash flow, not on a trailing 12-month basis, but on a kind of trailing two-quarter basis plus two quarters forward. Incredibly enough, probably the cheapest of all these companies times free cash flow is NVIDIA. This episode of Telltales is brought to you by Top Mark Capital. If you're a qualified investor who's looking for an innovative emerging manager, visit topmarkcapital.com to learn more. This is not an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. And now back to the show. So one of the things I think it'd be useful to address this afternoon is risk 
to NVIDIA's, that, that type of free cash flow NVIDIA assumes, say, 90 billion of sales or so, where would NVIDIA see risks? In other words, is 25 times free cash flow for NVIDIA, you know, what, what kind of risks are you assuming from an operating point of view? Or as far as the eye can see, do you see sales levels of $80 billion or better with those great gross margins? And in directing this question to uh, Mike and Jason, that's a much tougher question than any of the things I've covered up until now. So I think, I, I think I've used up half our 30 minutes, but they're going to have the much tougher half of the 30 minutes. And because after we go through the valuation of the video, we'll have some more questions. So Jason, over to you on the video. The big risk in my mind is industry estimates, uh, analysts estimate that NVIDIA is already capturing 70% of data center spend. And how much more of that can they capture? And how much more can these other big tech companies spend on CapEx? So, you know, they're, they're grabbing the majority of the pie and how much larger can this pie grow? Um, maybe there's consumer demand for all these AI tools, but just is there is there enough money to continue growing data center spend like we have been. Um, I think that's a, a huge risk for them. Yeah, I, th I agree. It totally boils down to demand. We have no idea how deep and long the demand will be for these products. We've seen some really impressive stuff so far. And I, th I think that the telltale indicator is what's happening in the software industry. It's getting much cheaper to develop software because these tools make software developers way more productive than they used to be. Um, that has many implications, but we'll stick to NVIDIA. It's a validator that you can charge some amount of money to make your engineering talent more, um, uh, more productive. So when I think of data center spend, should I be including replacing percentages of the software engineering workforce? I would be an interesting way to look at it. Um, I guess I was going more the path of like what other fields are large and can be monetized with generative AI products. Um, we know the Microsoft products are coming from Microsoft Office. Are those going to be really disappointing? Like a lot of the early, especially the ChatGPT3 based products were pretty disappointing. Um, or will they end up being really useful in the same way of making people 10x more productive and whatnot. It's a hanging question. So, so one piece of this answer is what is the demand? And demand ultimately is driven by what are the downstream products that are going to be using these servers, whether they're in the cloud or they're in Fortune 500 data centers. Um, the other piece is what are, what's the competition doing? Um, and that's your... AMD, Intel, Microsoft building their own chips, Amazon building their own chips, um, OpenAI apparently doing some of their own chips. Um, I think that I'm, you know, that's going to take probably a decade plus to really play out, unless and this is the wild card. Jason, I haven't really talked about this before, but if somebody achieves general artificial intelligence, 
you could see a scenario where they get so far ahead that they can afford to and can potentially build better products than NVIDIA, assuming NVIDIA is not the one, um, that they could leapfrog everybody else. That's just, it's kind of a far out there, kind of like the 10 surprises. It's like something that's really not on the, on the playing field, but you know, if it were, it would be impactful. It would impact a lot. <laughs> if someone invented the super intelligence. Yes. <laughs> to get Microsoft down to that 25 or 30 times range that we think is reasonable for NVIDIA with 80 or 90 billion of revenue, the co-pilot has to be taken up by tens of millions of of Microsoft users, right? Get to get Microsoft's free cash flow multiple from say in the 40s down to in the 30s. Right. Yeah, that's where. Uh, in order to get it below at th 30 or lower, you need to get somewhere between a quarter and a half of their current subscribers for Microsoft Office to take up this $30 per month AI Copilot product. So it better be good, because <laughs> if not, uh, I don't. You know, the, the, that growth isn't going to come from anywhere else. What do you think, Jason, about that happening, or the probability of that happening? I think it. I actually think it's pretty good. There's a pretty good chance if you use ChatGPT four, um, it's really good at creating you document templates, um, suggesting suggesting helping brainstorm what you should write about if you give it like a general idea of I'm, I want to write about this topic and and I need it to be 600 words roughly because it's an op-ed that kind of thing um, it'll it'll create you a pretty good template to start from it's not going to do it for you but if it saves you cycles and it saves you one hour of work it justifies the cost um, I, I think everyone's going to find this little niche that they use it for and, and justifying the expense. It, and I think the real play for Microsoft is that it moves much beyond what our current expectations for a generative model are, is where you have like a text box that you interface or even a chat, a voice communicator to something that you can instruct to go do another task. Um, and maybe we should get into some of the CES stuff, because I was at JP Morgan, which was going on, the healthcare conference was going on the same week as the CES conference. And I've sort of caught up on a lot of the stuff that happened at CES. And no surprise, everything at CES was about artificial intelligence. Um, a lot of it was junk, but I think some of the really interesting stuff was um, there was a generative AI startup that's based out of Santa Monica called Rabbit. It came with a hardware device that looked very much like a toy. And I initially brushed it off when I saw it, but I, I've done a little more research on it. And it was really interesting, mainly because, well, they have a little device that you can talk to and you can ask it to do stuff just like you would with the ChatGPT app. Um, but the more interesting part is they've built this entire back end piece that um, 
they call it a large action model. And the concept there is that the model can go take action for you, as in it can interface with a website or an application for you. Um, and that may not seem super novel, but by training it how to click buttons, fill out forms, all of that kind of stuff, like kind of the normal manual busy work, um, it's able to very quickly build up a library of applications that it can interconnect with um, and do stuff for you. So I think from Microsoft's perspective or Google's perspective, anybody that's trying to do something in this space, that's really the future. A new method of maybe interacting with the computer that maybe isn't the phone, maybe it is the phone, but where the computer actually goes off and takes on those tasks for you. Um, that makes sense. Did I communicate that well enough, Jason or, or Hunt? Yeah. yeah, I think, like you said, the, the toy factor of the hardware was a bit of a distraction. Um, but the real meat of it is this action model. And if, if it can, if you communicate with this rabbit action model, the same way you communicate with uh, someone else on your, you know, your team at work, you're going to call them, you're going to send them text messages, emails, if you can do that with this action model and it can take actions based on your input there, isn't that a more natural user interface than clicking buttons on a, on a phone? Right. And, and I'll also point out that they're not the only one that's going down this path. I mean, OpenAI is certainly doing some of the exact same stuff. The concept of the hardware piece tells a whole different story, though, and that is that generally platform shifts in the past. So think of the iPhone or the smartphone, think of the PC, those were massive opportunities for where everything changed. And there were periods of years where you could have made investment in Microsoft or, you know, in the early PC era and done super well, or in Apple, when the iPhone was launched, the, the shifts aren't fully embraced as to what the big change is. And the question is, is whether this generative AI thing really sustains the current ecosystem or whether it disrupts the current ecosystem. Um, I think, you know, the conclusion we've mostly come to is that it's probably more sustaining than it is disruptive, but there's, you can make a case for almost every one of the major tech companies as to why they won't actually implement some of this stuff. And it will take a disruptor in order to get some of this technology to market. Right. And I've thought about why, why does, why did rabbit create the hardware and why is it not an app on, on a phone? Um, and I think a lot of it goes to getting out of the walled garden app store ecosystem and they don't, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the take rate that, that Google and Apple have on all transactions on their phones. Uh, this gets away from that. This gets around it. Um, it doesn't interact with other apps. It, it learns how to use the websites. And I think ultimately it leads to applications that are interfaced with through, you know, SMS messaging or calling it and talking to it. Um, and then there's no interaction with an app store. Yep. Hopefully we didn't lose you completely there. <laughs> no, no. I, I have a, I have a follow-up question, which uh, may clear it up a bit. Doesn't Apple or their iPhone 17 or 18 or whatever they get to in a couple of years need to have this kind of capability uh, in order to 
get people to give up their old iPhones and, and pay $1,500 for a new one? That is 100% what we think. Yeah. We think what will ultimately happen is Apple will release some version of this that is really good. And maybe it, you know, think about the large action model. I mean, they literally have the code for every app that's on the, you, you, their ability to kind of spin this into an even better version of what these guys at rabbit produced. Um, I mean, they, they have the capability. Can they ship the product is the question. And it's really hard. You know, the bigger they get, the harder it is to ship anything monumental, especially if it's going to change an existing paradigm. So that's the fear at Apple is they just don't actually ship anything. Right. The, the iPhone killed the iPod business. Do they have the appetite to kill the App Store now is the question in my mind. Mm -hmm. But I think it's, we don't know how well the rabbit actually works in practice, but I think it's pretty phenomenal how quickly they've built something that seems very impactful. Yeah, we'll have a review somewhere around Easter because I pre-ordered one. So we'll, uh, yeah. we'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. We haven't touched on healthcare yet. Any healthcare news over the week impacting any of the companies we've become interested in? I don't have any news items that are particularly interesting. We've been digging into... Um, the implications of general uh, generative AI in drug development, and the the company at the at the conference that we thought was most interesting. Although we should point out that it burns a hundred million dollars a quarter and it's increasing. Um, they have this. Uh, they have. I think it's the largest supercomputer in the healthcare industry. Um, and it's a NVIDIA H100 kit. Yeah. The company's uh, recursion pharmaceuticals. Yeah. yeah. And they, essentially what they're doing is they're simulating biology and chemistry and then validating it with robotic experiments. And the question is, is that valuable? And if they're actually successful in this, what does that, what does that tell us? And then how would we tell if they're actually successful in this? And, and the conclusion we've we've mostly come to is it's going to take until the end of the decade probably before we know whether what they're doing is actually working or not. There'll probably be some indicators beforehand, but it takes so long to get a drug through FDA clearance. The What they're essentially trying to do is say that we can do a better job of selecting the candidates that we put through um, through testing so that they're higher probability to be approved. But that doesn't actually shorten the timeline for producing a new treatment. It just increases the probability, which should dramatically reduce the cost. But because it takes so long to get these through, you know, best case scenario, we get one of their early ones, which are, uh, without going into the disease states, that there's an undruggable an, uh, disease that's a really good candidate for this and the FDA might give it a accelerated green light just based on phase two data that would be the first approval but one you know one sample getting all the way through clinical trials tells us literally nothing about whether what they're doing is is beneficial or worthwhile so um, so I think we are we're looking at as something to just as a trend to follow over the course of the next uh, five to ten years sounds good 
In the meantime, everyone be well and stay healthy. We'll be on next Wednesday, and next Wednesday we'll focus a little more on healthcare and a little less on chips and software. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in again next week as we will be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.